Okay, good morning, guys. So, we have arrived at the end of our journey through Philippians. Uh, this letter that Paul is writing in chains uh, to a church that he planted some years before to encourage them, and a church that's actually doing pretty well. And today we've got the privilege of finishing up with one of the most famous of Paul's statements, or what we've been calling createments, so verses that, that create something in us, that, that changes, that do something in our hearts. And I'd say this verse is not just one that is one of the most famous in Philippians, but it's one of the most famous of Paul's statements in the whole of Scripture. And it's this, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's a favorite verse amongst professional athletes. Uh, we use it to inspire ourselves and spur ourselves on in pursuit of glory. Because nothing is impossible for us if we believe in Jesus and we try hard. Because we can do it. We can win because of this verse. And I say we. I say ourselves because as I was prepping this preach and reading this verse, I've decided it's not too late for me. I may be 36. I may have a dodgy back. But hey, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Apart from take my coat off. You'd be glad to know there's no more layers to come off. So I'm quitting eldership. This will be my last preach. I'll be attending Team GB trials on Monday. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I didn't know Team G made extra large t-shirts. And I'm going to be a sprinter. This is going to be me. As of Monday, I can do all things who strengthen, uh, through God who strengthens me. You know, I think stri- sprinting's a bit of a stretch. Debbie said, why don't you try something a bit more you? Maybe darts, something like that. But I want to take God at his word. He says I can do all things through God who strengthens me. And I'm particularly inspired by this guy. Now I get a lot of stick for preaching about football. This is American football. It doesn't count. It's not the same. This is a guy called Tim Tebow. Now Tim Tebow is a devout Christian American football quarterback. And if you don't, if you don't know anything about American football, don't worry. But quarterback is the most important position. It's the prize position. It's the guy who gets all the glory, all the money. It's the guy who throws the ball around the pitch to score the touchdowns. And this guy, Tim Tebow, is, was just an all-out Christian on and off the pitch. This is a photo of him. Uh, this became known as Tebowing. He would just literally kneel down on the, on the pitch. Jacob, you know Tim Tebow. Um, not personally. Do you know him personally? Probably not. America's a big place. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but he would take a knee. He'd kneel on the pitch and he'd just pray. He'd pray to God, help me. Help me in this game. Help me to do, to do well. And he would talk really openly about his, his faith in Jesus. And he'd come up with these inspirational, kind of pseudo-biblical, sporty quotes. Like, like this, a lot of people will tell you you're not good enough, but I'm here to tell you that you are. And then he'd say, you can't lose confidence in yourself or you've lost already. When you get knocked down, you've got to keep getting back up. Come on, Tim. That's the stuff. Just keep believing, he'd say. This is an opportunity where great things can happen. And let's be great right now. Amen. This is going to do me good in my sprint career, I can tell. And this guy genuinely inspired a heck of a lot of people. And he used to play with kind of war paint under his eyes. And on that war paint, he'd write Bible verses. That meant something to you. And it, here you see this photo right here with, with that verse I've just talked about, Philippians 4, 13, literally written on his face as he's playing American football in front of millions of TV audience and um, people in the stadium. 
He's loud and proud. This guy's living for Jesus. And he's, he's quoting the scripture to inspire him to great things. Well, there's a problem. Tim Tebow was not good at American football, I'm afraid. He had this unique style where he was really good at running with the ball, but not so good at throwing it, which was actually a bit of a problem. It's like, it's like trying, to, trying to become a professional artist, but actually you're really good at singing and not drawing. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a drawback. Oh, that wasn't meant to be a pun, but there you go. Um, you know, he probably genuinely believed that he could do all things through God. But he couldn't. And after one really exciting season where it looked like he was going to have this glittering career, that season ended in failure. And after that, he, he had several false starts. He signed for team after team after team, and he just get released. And now he's not, an, he's not a footballer anymore. He, had, he played just 16 games of American football before his career ended. And now he's actually trying to be a professional baseball player, still believe in God for that verse, but he's only in the minor leagues. He's not, he's not really getting anything. He's not really getting anywhere with his career. Now, I've got nothing against Tim Tebow. I think he's a really brave guy, really outspoken guy, a guy who really wears his faith on his sleeve and on his face. Um, and, you know, he, he used his platform. He still uses his platform to talk about his faith in Jesus. And I really respect him for that. But he's learned the hard way that Philippians 4.13 is not, in fact, a mantra to guarantee sporting success which means I'm probably not going to make it as a sprinter, and I immediately retract my resignation as an elder. <laughs> I'm keeping the T-shirt, though. I quite like it. <laughs> in fact, it doesn't guarantee you any other kind of success either. It doesn't guarantee you success in the business world or in your career or in your raising a family or how many friends you're going to have. Philippians 4.13 isn't this guarantee of achievement through God. So what is it all about? Let's get on to the passage itself. We're going to read Philippians chapter 4. We're going to go verses 10 to the end. It'll be up on the screen for you. Uh, 10 to 20, in fact, we're going to do today. Feel free to read along. It says this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learnt in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's that verse. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again, once and again. You sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, we've got the context here. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. What is it all about? Well, it's about contentment, not achievement. Philippians 4.13 does not say that anything can be achieved through God's strength. Rather, 
that no matter what life throws at us, in God, we can be utterly content. If you strip back the verse to the original Greek, I've got it on the screen there, the most basic rendering of the verse says this, for all things I have strength in the one strengthening me. And then it's rare that I would advocate the Good News Bible translation over something like the ESV. The Good News Bible is not the best Bible translation in the world. It's a little bit basic, I think, and then it, it, takes, it cuts a few corners. But actually, for this particular verse, I think it's a much more helpful and accurate reading uh, than, than the ESV. It says this, I have the strength to face all conditions by the power that Christ gives me. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference there? It's not saying, I can do everything. I can do anything through God who gives me strength. It's saying, no, I have the strength to face whatever condition by the power of Christ that Christ gives me. The message version, another, another really helpful paraphrase, says this, whatever I have, whatever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Can you see what we're getting at here? It's not saying, I can do anything. I can reach for the skies. This isn't about God empowering us for superhuman feats for our glory. This is about God strengthening us to get through any and every situation, whether it's good or it's bad. And Paul is telling us this in direct relation to how he feels knowing that the Philippian church has been so concerned for him in his current situation under arrest. Remember, he's, he's, he's writing this letter in chains. He's chained to a Roman guard, stuck in the middle of Rome, under arrest, not knowing how it's going to turn out. And the, and the Philippians have sent him Epaphroditus, their friends, to give him gifts, to strengthen him, to encourage him. They're really seriously worried about him. And Paul's saying, look, you don't need to worry about me. All is not lost. Please be assured and content. Because God is strengthening me and he's keeping me that way. So what is contentment? I wonder how many of you, how many of us would describe ourselves right now in our lives as content. What does it mean? Because I don't think as a culture we do contentment very well. I remember Matt's preach some time ago uh, on, in the book of Mark where he talked about our disposable contract society. Do you remember that? He had all these old mobile phones and how through history we just continue. You know, that technology advances. We constantly want the new and the better and the bigger and the faster and the, the stronger. We instantly, constantly look to upgrade our lives, don't we? We're not content for long. We get something. We like it. It's great. Oh, but now there's a new one. I want a better one. So often we, we say things like, if only I could have this, or do this, or get this. If only I could change this. If only I could reach this level. If only I could get that degree. If only I could have that boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife. If only I could get this in my life, then everything would be better. And I'd be happy. I'd be satisfied. I'd be content. But what actually happens is, we get there, and we want the next thing. And the next thing. We don't do contentment well as people in the Western world today. And you know, the culture of celebrity and riches doesn't help because we put people on pedestals. We, we look to people who look like they have it all and we lift them up and we think, that's who I want to be like. They've got it sorted. They've got everything. That's who I want to be. And we don't realize that under the wealth and the glitz and the glamour, they're often even less content than we are. I'm reminded of this guy. Do you remember Andre Agassi? Sorry, it's another sporting reference, but hey, it's who I am. 
Andre Agassi. Does anyone remember him? People remember him? Famous tennis player. He won Wimbledon, won all sorts of uh, tournaments. He was, he was generally an elite, one of the best tennis players ever in the world. Hugely successful, hugely wealthy. He even went on to marry another hugely successful, wealthy tennis player, Steffi Graf, there on the screen. And many would look at his life and think, wow, this guy, he gets to play sport for a living. He gets to go home to his mansion. He, and, and there is his equally successful and sporty wife. And just what a life he must lead. Oh, what, if I could just have his life. I'm going to read you this excerpt from his autobiography. This comes from near the end of his career. He says this. I'm a young man, relatively speaking, 36. 36 is young, just, just know that. But I wake as if I'm 96. After three decades of sprinting, stopping on a dime, jumping high and landing hard, my body no longer feels like my body, especially in the morning. Consequently, my mind doesn't feel like my mind. Upon opening my eyes, I'm a stranger to myself. And while again this isn't new, in the mornings, it's more pronounced. I run quickly through the basic facts of my life. My name is Andre Agassi. My wife's name is Stephanie Graf. We have two children, a son and a daughter, five and three. We live in Las Vegas, Nevada. But currently I reside in a suite at the Four Seasons Hotel in New York City because I'm playing in the 2006 US Open, my last US Open. In fact, my last tournament ever. I play tennis for a living, even though I hate tennis. I hate it with a dark and secret passion, and I always have. And as this last piece of identity falls into place, I slide to my knees, and in a whisper I say, please, let this be over. And then, I'm not ready for this to be over. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? This guy had everything. And yet underneath it all, he was hating his life. His, his career was a torture to him. If you, if you read the rest of his autobiography, you, you find that he's pretty much abused into his career by a father who just drove him and drove him and drove him and drove him to practice. He used to tell it, you know, he, his, his father had this thing that if you hit a million tennis balls a year, you'll make it. And he would make him hit a million tennis balls a year as a kid. He'd just fire up this tennis machine and just make him hit and hit and hit all day. He hated it. On the surface, his life looked amazing, but beneath it, this was not a content man, even though he had everything the world could offer. You know, most people would look at Andre Agassi's life and say, you know what, if I could swap places with him, wow, that would be all right. But actually, this guy, he was living emotional torture. I want to look at the kind of contentment Paul is talking about in, in, in this chapter in, in Philippians. And I think there's three, th- three key things. There's always three, isn't it? It's funny the Bible's like that. There's always three. It doesn't matter how many times, how much passage you do, there's always three for some reason. Incredible. Um, first thing is this. Contentment. It's not, about, it's not about external circumstances. It's not about external circumstances. Paul's contentment has nothing to do what, what he's going, what's going on in his life at any one time. And he makes it very clear in verses 11 to 13. He's seen it all. He's been through highs. He's been through lows. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been beaten up. He's been one who's persecuting Christians. He's currently in jail, tied up, chained up to a Roman guard. But he says, you know, my contentment is unwavering. He's no more content in a time of prosperity and health and success 
than when he's going through a trauma, such as sickness or imprisonment or shipwreck or flogging or stoning. You know, we might look at our circumstances. You might put them on a graph year by year and say, that's, the, that's my circumstances, up and down, roller coaster ride. This is what it looked like. If you go through the years, I've had good years, I've had bad years, I've had ups, I've had, I've had downs. That's what our external circumstance, uh, circumstances look like. But for Paul, there's another line on that graph, if you can see it there, that red line at the top. The circumstances go up and down, but contentment remains high. It never wavers. It's contentment is always at the top. Because it's not linked to what's going on around him in his life. His contentment is based entirely on his faith in the promises of God. And the key to that promise, those promises, is the, is the promise that God will never, ever leave him or forsake him. It's a promise that's echoed in Hebrews 13, 5. It says this, and it's, it's, it's interesting how he links it to money here, the writer of Hebrews. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the key to contentment. It's knowing that God, no matter whether you're rich or you're poor or somewhere in the middle, no matter whether you're going through the highs of life or the lows of life, he never ever leaves us. He never ever walks away. He never ever forsakes us. Paul knows he is never alone. The presence of the living God is in him. His earthly situation, whether it's good or bad, is temporary. He is God's, and God is his forever. And it's remarkable, given what he went through in his life, to understand that how Paul managed to do that. It's hard to, to comprehend, because the, the experiences they had, the persecution he faced, the trial he was under, seems so far removed from our following of God. Is anyone like... James Bond films. Yeah, Amanda, Kate, I hate them. <laughs> I mean, I really, I really, James Bond, they wind me up something rotten. I've watched one, but I know, but I know, I know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter which one. Uh, they're all the same. It was uh, Casino Royale, if you're interested, which, which I believe is meant to be one of the better ones, isn't it? No. Uh, <laughs> oh, this is descending into chaos. Barbara's doing. Barbara, you don't like James Bond, do you? Right? We'll have a non-James Bond watching party. It'd be great. The reason I don't like James Bond, the reason I don't like James Bond, thanks, Matt, is that there's no suspense. Because you know, you know that whatever happens, James Bond's going to be okay. It doesn't matter how dangerous the situation. I'm sorry this is a spoiler alert for anyone. But it doesn't matter what scrape he gets himself in. It doesn't matter how much danger he's in. It doesn't matter how bad the baddie is or what weapon the baddie's got. You always know that James Bond's going to be fine. For me, there's like, what's the point? I know he's going to be all right. I don't, need to, I don't need to watch this film to know that. You know, Paul was not James Bond. He didn't have that luxury. He didn't know if things were going to turn out all right. He didn't know if at the end of this house arrest, he was going to be executed or not. In fact, he wasn't this time, but later on in his life, he was. He was executed for his faith. He didn't know when he was being stoned that whether he was going to get out alive. He didn't know when he was being shipwrecked if he was going to make it to shore. He never had that luxury. And yet he remained utterly calm and content. 
And that bravery, I think, is mirrored in present day by persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, the kind of people that Kathy is going to be visiting shortly. People who are living in extreme danger, not knowing day to day, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be put in prison? Am I going to be stoned for my faith today, tomorrow? I don't know. The cost is so great. And yet for Paul and for for so many other Christians across the world even today, it's doable because of the strength and the contentment that they have in Christ Jesus. And that, that same strength and contentment is there for us. In God, we have everything we could ever need through the sacrifice of his son. Jesus has bought our freedom, our freedom from sin, from death, from pain. And we know that we are guaranteed an incredible future with God in heaven. And that's not always easy to contemplate and understand here on earth. But our lives here, believe me, are a fleeting moment. Because for eternity, we will exist in God's perfect new creation, free of pain, sin, and suffering. We already have the permanent presence of God in our lives as Christians. But we're going to go on to something even greater, the permanent living with him in his new creation, which should outweigh any uh, current circumstances. Knowing that, understanding that, trusting that, that's what gives us contentment against any other circumstance. So that's the first thing. It's not about achievement. It's about contentment. And contentment is not about external circumstances. The second point is this. Contentment is learned. It's learned. You don't have to be specially gifted to have it, but you do need to actively learn it. Why do I say that? I say that because of verse, uh, where is it? 11, is it? Uh, Yeah, verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content. I have learned. That's three really important, challenging words from from this passage, I think. It's helpful, first of all, because we don't need to look at Paul as some sort of special, supernatural person who had superhuman ability to remain content that we want to have, but in reality we can't match. We don't have to look at Paul and think, well, he had a natural talent for this. He, you know, he, he had it. It was fine. He, he was able to do it because God specially gifted him to do it, and only he could do it, and we can't possibly live up to that. I don't think Paul did have a natural talent for this. He says, I have learned. He had to learn it. It implies to me that it wasn't easy. And that he probably had some failures along the way. There were probably moments where Paul maybe forgot to be content. Where he had to realize he got it wrong. Where he actually had to choose to remember and be content in the promises of God. Rather than having it as his miraculous, zen-like, default setting. That helps me because I know I don't get this right all the time. And I'm sure you guys don't either. And it's not because I don't have the special character and gifting that Paul had. It's because I haven't learned yet. It helps me. It helps me to know that. But it also, it challenges me. Because I haven't learned yet. And the onus is on me. With God's help, to learn. There's an active part that I have to play in being content. I need to participate in becoming content. When I worked at a university, I used to work at a university in Leeds. I remember there was a huge shift in attitude one year 
when they put tuition fees up from £3,000 a year to £9,000 a year. And almost overnight, it seemed like students or some students stopped being learners and became customers. It was like, I'm paying £9,000 now, so you better give me the degree that I've come to get. You better give me what I want. I'm paying for this. They're not paying for it. It's a student loan. And, yeah, never mind. Um, they are paying for it. You are paying for it, I'm joking. Um, but you know, some of these students, none of you guys, I know you're all great. Some of the, some of the students that we were dealing with at the time, <laughs> whew, uh, some of the students we were dealing with at the time, literally, they seemed to forget that they needed to work and they needed to study and they needed to earn their degree. And some of them, if they got a bad result, they come straight to the office and complain and they want compensation. Well, they, I wasn't taught properly. Or the materials weren't good enough. Or I didn't know I had to do this. You didn't communicate this to me. I want better. I'm paying £9,000 for this. When actually, they'd failed to do the learning. They hadn't done what they needed to do as a student. You don't get a degree, as you, you'll agree, without working for it, do you? You have to work for it. Learning doesn't get done to you. It doesn't get injected into you. You have to engage. You have to learn. You study. You repeat. You drill it in. Do you know what? I think it's the same with contentment. You can't just buy it. It can't just be done to you. Contentment in God comes from spending time with him. From allowing his truth to continually seep in. To read the word. To remember his priorities. To spend time praying and worshipping him. We learned this from Amanda last week, a brilliant uh, preach from Amanda last week on the, on, the, on the earlier part of this chapter. And there's some key things in that for us. Verses, five, at the end of verse 5 up to verse 9, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see? There's something that we have to do. Yeah? He's saying, don't be anxious, but by prayer and, and supplication, you make your request to God. Then you won't be anxious. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Then what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, the peace and the truth and the hope and the contentment, it comes from God. It comes from God. But it abounds in us by our prayer and our time spent with God and his word. We have to choose to fix our minds on it. Do you see that? We learn it from him. But we have to learn it. You know, when we go to school or university, the studying, the knowledge, the wisdom, the teaching, it comes from the teachers and from the academics and the textbooks. But it doesn't get downloaded into us. We have to show up, we have to listen, we have to learn, and we have to read. And I believe it's like this with contentment. It comes from God. It comes from him. It's his gift to us. But it comes from us showing up. It comes from us engaging with him and receiving it from him. If you're not content in God this morning, if life circumstances are overwhelming you and your default setting is dissatisfaction, then I believe there's some learning to be done. Contentment is readily available, but you need to choose to find it in him. 
That's the second thing about contentment. It's learned. Third thing is this. Contentment's great, but external circumstances still matter. So having said all this, I think Paul ends being pretty clear about something. Contentment in God, whilst it's not based on earthly circumstances, it doesn't mean that earthly circumstances don't matter. I want you to hear that this morning. What I'm not saying is, ignore your earthly circumstances, just put on a big smile, plaster the fake smile on, everything's fine, you should be happy. And if you're not happy, you're doing something wrong. I'm not saying that this morning. This, is, this passage is not a call to grin and bear it. It's not, a pas- not, it's not a call to put on a fake smile. It's not a call to pretend that life is easy. Paul tells, tells the Philippian church in the last part of the chapter, verses 14 to 20, he thanks them profusely. He thanks them profusely for what they've given to him. And I believe it's in line with the rest of the Bible. The Bible sets a very clear pattern of pain and lament and suffering. And honestly, if you read the Psalms, just read the Psalms. That's full of, of David and other people just pouring their heart out to God in pain. They're not putting a brave face on it. It's not putting a big, a big fake, happy, clappy Christian smile on it. He's saying, this is hard, Lord. Where are you? Help me. But also worshiping God and maintaining contentment in him. The Bible is, it teaches us to be honest about our situation. And Paul is honest about his situation and, and he's, he makes it clear to the Philippians how grateful he is for what they've done for him. Their decision to send Epaphroditus in his struggle. He describes that gift as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Contentment in God doesn't mean that practical support and help and understanding isn't necessary. Jess, could we, um, could we just play this video? Show that video because, firstly, it supports Kathy in, in what she's doing, just gives you an idea of the sort of people that Kathy goes and works with and open doors, and that's really helpful. But we don't look at Kuldeep and think, oh, well, mate, sorry you've had a bit of a tough time, but remain content in the Lord, and you'll be all right. No. Practical support. Given practical support, open doors, that's this brilliant ministry of, of just blessing and supporting people in that situation. We're not supposed to just glibly look on and say, well, just keep your chin up. Remember, remember to be content. Actually, you know, contentment in God isn't an excuse to turn a blind eye to suffering. Actually, and Paul is very clear himself in Romans twelve fifteen. What did he say? He says, Paul, uh, sorry, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're not robots. We're not robots. We're not supposed to turn ourselves off to, to pain and suffering or even good things as well. When we see, when we see joy, we rejoice. When we see pain, we, we, we weep and we mourn and we support. Contentment is not an excuse to switch off. But I love what Kuldeep said there. I love what he said there. I will not be discouraged. This guy's been attacked with an axe. Attacked with an axe for his faith. I will not be discouraged. I believe they're the sort of words that can only come from someone who's found contentment in God. In God alone. He knows his earthly situation, as painful as it is. And he knows the lows and the pain of it. He knows what it is to nearly die. He knows what it is to rely on the support of someone else because he's at his life's end almost. And yet he can say... I will not be discouraged. 
because I know what I'm doing is right. So this morning, if you're here and, and, and you're struggling and life's hard, I'm not saying to you, plaster on a smile. I'm not saying to you, you're wrong to be sad. I'm saying to you, there is contentment available in God which surpasses, which surpasses any of these circumstances. And we'll be with you in the pain and we'll support you in the suffering and the sorrow. But I also want to help you to gain true contentment, the sort of contentment that can't come from any earthly circumstances. We're not to be overwhelmed. We're not to be so affected by events and circumstances that our lives become dictated by them. Nothing should shake the truth that sits in our hearts, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that he lives in us by his spirit, and that we're going to spend eternity with him that's where contentment comes from and that brings us to the end of philippians when we gave our series the tagline live lives worthy of the gospel and throughout this letter paul has sought to remind us of just what god has done for us how it should impact our lives if we if we remember back he's called us to remain joyful despite our circumstances. And we remain joyful because the gospel is true. He's taught us, he called on us to not be afraid of death, but to live life to the full while we have it because the gospel removes all fear of death. He's called us to try and live our lives in humility with others like Jesus demonstrated because the gospel unites us. He's called on us to count others as more significant than ourselves because the gospel is unselfish. He's called us to shine brightly in the world because the gospel needs to ring out to everyone. He tells us to count everything as loss compared to knowing Jesus because the gospel is more valuable than anything. He invites us to forget all that lies behind and to focus on the future because the gospel has set us free from our past and assured us of future glory. He reminds us to put into practice all that we've learned to help us through tough situations because the gospel is useful for every situation in life. And today, he reminds us to learn to be content no matter what our circumstances because the gospel assures us of God's presence in us and our eternal future with him. There is so much to take in from the book of Philippians. And I hope you've got a taste of the understanding through this series of just how incredible, how multifaceted, how utterly transforming and life-changing the good news of Jesus Christ is. To those who believe, and for those who don't believe as well, it's good news for you if you choose to accept it. This morning, as we, as we finish, there's an opportunity just to reflect and to receive this gospel truth all over again. It may be like a couple of hundred of those kids at New Day this last week. There may be just a, a moment this morning to just re-receive God's love in your life. To come back to his glorious truth. To just receive the gospel afresh. To be reminded of who you are in him. To be reminded that you are loved. That your sins are forgiven. That you are justified. That means... When your sins are forgiven, 
It doesn't mean that there's still a list of your sins somewhere that you have to remember like a criminal record, but you've just been let off them. No. Being justified means it's just as if I never sinned at all. Because you have Christ's record instead of your record. That's being substituted. When God sees your criminal record, it's empty because it's Christ's. There's huge freedom in that. You might just need to receive that again this morning. You might need to be reminded of that this morning. And maybe contentment is a big issue for you this morning. Maybe you're overwhelmed by life circumstances. Maybe there's time to, to relearn contentment. That might be because life's going great. It might be that life is so good for you right now that actually it's become about the things that are making it good. It might be that it's, your satisfaction in life has become based on your income or how well your business is doing, or how well your career is going, or how great your life is at the moment. And if one of those things were taken away, what's left? Or it might be that life is, a, is flipping hard at the moment, and you can't see past your circumstances, and that is ruling your day-by-day existence. Paul invites us this morning to relearn contentment, to ask God for it, to ask God for his spirit to flow in you again, and just to bring you that peace that surpasses all understanding only comes from a relationship with him.